0: Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey everybody. It's been a while since I last published an episode, and that's primarily because for the last month I've been working on my hospital's bone marrow transplant unit. And whew, it was a long month. If you're someone who does transplant for a living, then you have my respect. So it's a very difficult branch of medicine that you have, but the things that you're able to achieve are just unbelievable. But all that to say, you know, sometimes fellowship training gets in the way of publishing podcasts, and so it just comes with the territory. So thanks for bearing with me. At any rate, we have a great discussion today. You'll be hearing from Dr. Erin McCann, who currently is a general pediatrics resident, but will be discussing a project that she did while receiving her Master's of Public Health at the Harvard School of Public Health that was focused on on identifying the educational needs of parents of childhood cancer patients. She did a multi-site investigation at four different countries in Latin America, which included Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Panama. With her, you'll be hearing from Dr. Sawad Fuentes-Alabi, who was one of Erin's collaborators in El Salvador when she was actually on-site discussing parental education needs with the staff of the treatment unit and with the parents themselves. So you'll get both perspectives on how this project unfolded, what people learned from it, and what the next steps are. So I really like this project for two reasons. One is that it asked a question and found an answer and identified next steps. So it tells a really clean story about how to identify a gap in care and improve it. But I also like it because Aaron was both a medical student and a master's student in public health at the time of doing this project. And so she was able to complete it, despite all of her other educational obligations that she had. And so I think her story is instructive for those of us in global oncology who are trainees, who are interested in doing projects in in a global setting, but who have difficulty completing the projects because of the many points of friction that come with trying to complete a project that is far away and that takes a significant amount of collaboration and coordination. So listening to her story and the lessons that she learned about completing these types of projects, I think can be useful for anybody who is interested in this area. So with that said, let's get to the conversation. I give you Dr. Aaron McCann and Dr. Suad Fuentes-Alabi. Okay, so I'm here today with Aaron McCann and Suad uh, Fuentes-Alabi, and we are going to go ahead and talk about their project. So Aaron and Suad, can you both introduce yourselves, tell us where you are at currently First, and then how you got involved in the project?
1: Sure. I can start. So, this is Erin uh, McCann. So, I am currently a resident, a pediatrics resident at Cincinnati Children's, but I kind of got to know Sawad and the other folks from the different sites uh, when I was doing my master's of public health in Boston. And I started working with the Global Health Initiative at Dana-Farber and with Irini Albanti, who is kind of my mentor on this project and she sort of connected me to the different sites and all of the folks in the different hospitals there.
2: Uh, Hi, this is Soal Fuentes Alavi from El Salvador. I um, have been working in pediatric oncology uh, uh, as a pediatrician first uh, since 2003 and then after my training as a pediatric oncologist since 2007. I had the opportunity to collaborate with Erin uh, in this project uh, thanks to the intervention and the introduction of Erin Albanti, who was my also my mentor and my friend uh, through the global department in Dana-Farber uh, Cancer Institute. And I was also doing my master in public health in, at Harvard Public uh, Health School. And we uh, started to talk about the um, different opportunities to develop any research and mentoring uh, with other students in the public health schools. So that's, we ended up connecting with Erin and working this amazing work that she has done.
0: Great. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what question were you trying to answer and why was it a question that you thought was worth answering?
1: Yeah. So we wanted to know what questions families had after they received the news that their child had been diagnosed with cancer. So we wanted to know what questions they had and what educational topics were most important for them to learn in the process of undergoing cancer treatment and all of the follow-up. And we wanted to definitely hear their perspective and also understand what types of media we could use to deliver educational information that would be most relevant to families.
0: And so, Aaron, you were um, a ma- uh, You were doing a master's in public health at this time. Were you also a medical student? Is this was this a dual training program for you?
1: So, I actually took a year off of medical school to pursue my master's of public health. Um, I think you could have done it both ways concurrently, but I wanted to be able to dedicate my full myself full time to the MPH program. So, I had actually taken away from a uh, year away from medical school and then returned for my final year after the MPH.
0: Okay, great. And did you have any experience in global oncology prior to this time, or was this a completely new area for you?
1: So I had no experience in global oncology. I had done a little bit of global health work beforehand. I had done some research in Peru through the Fulbright, but I had never um, worked within the field of oncology. But the way that I kind of learned about the topic from Irini Albanti was through a project that focused on like education of families and i'm really interested in that aspect so it appealed to me right away because of that kind of topic that we would be addressing with families
0: great so so it was more the family education part that that brought you to it and then you got involved in this world of of oncology i suppose
1: yes and then once you kind of get sucked in it's so hard everybody is so wonderful and so passionate that i just fell in love with it
0: Awesome and so being new to the field of global oncology, what, what expectations did you bring or what I know you did a literature search to try to understand what families knew uh, I guess at diagnosis or before diagnosis um, so what what did you find that was out there already that was able to inform your question?
1: Yeah, so before kind of jumping into everything, I wanted to make sure I knew what literature was available and um, I basically was able to find, you know, there's different organizations that have worked on publishing kind of guidelines or checklists of different topics that need to be covered or the setting of how education should be uh, delivered to families. The Children's Oncology Group has some guidelines that kind of discuss important topics and they even break it down, you know, primary topics that definitely need to be covered immediately and then secondary and tertiary topics. I know you guys with um, SIOP Point have Also, been working on educational resources for um, families and providers to use with families. But I was able to find these a fair amount of resources talking about how to deliver information or what topics were important in um, high resource settings. But I wasn't able to find as much information to see um, whether this same thought process would be applicable in low and middle income settings or limited resource settings. And so I kind of wanted to address that gap and see if, A, if the topics were still the same topics that were relevant and prioritized by families, and also B, what it looked like to develop educational tools when you don't have you know, a wealth of resources to develop fancy videos or um, you know, resources, written materials that were as relevant for your population.
0: That makes sense. And so you met Irini, who has actually been on the podcast a while back. She was with the crew of Persistent Productions that made the How I Live documentary about children with cancer and how they live all across the world. So if you want to go check that out, I think that was episode five. Um, You can go back and see it in in your podcast feed. So you connected with Irini over there in Dana-Farber, and she said, okay, I this sounds like a very interesting project. Here are some sites. Is that right? Like she kind of connected you to various sites all around the world?
1: Yeah. And actually, initially, the way I was brought into the project was um, through Megan and Mike as well from Persistent Productions. So they had been actually in Myanmar filming for their documentary that was spoken about previously. And they had, I think it was an oncologist or somebody who had come up to them and said, we would love for you to do this with An educational video for our families. And so that's kind of what brought on this idea initially. And then once I kind of uh, was pulled into the project, most of my experience has been working in Latin America. And because I speak Spanish, we sort of um, chose to start there. And the GHI at Dana Farber, the Global Health Initiative, has uh, relationships with partners from all of the sites where we ended up working and um, Irini has been working with Soad and some of our other collaborators for a much longer time than I have. So I was able to connect directly through those previously formed relationships.
0: And what sites did you actually end up working in?
1: So we ended up working at four different sites. With Soad, we were um, at Benjamin Bloom Hospital in El Salvador. And then in Guatemala City, we were at uh, the Unidad Nacional de Oncología Pediátrica, which is um, also known as UNAP. UNAP, yep. In Mexico, we were in the state of Querétaro, and we worked at Hospital Infantil Teletón de Oncología, or Hito. you sometimes hear it phrased. And then um, in Panama City, we were at the Hospital Nacional de Niños de José Renan Esquivel, which is their large um, pediatric uh, hospital in
0: Panama City. Did you then go travel to each of these sites? Did you have time on the ground in each place?
1: Yeah, so initially we kind of uh, were able to meet face-to-face over like Skype and phone calls to sort of discuss the project and see if this was something that each site was interested in and what it could look like as far as who we could interview and who would be the key um, informants that we needed to speak with while we were um, actually in-country. And then I was able to spend about... Just really a week at each site. So um, when we arrived, I hit the ground running, and um, thanks to the kind of connections we had formed beforehand, we were able to really um, speak with a lot of people in a fairly short amount of time.
0: Great. And so you arrived in El Salvador at some point in time and met Swad, or maybe met her over the internet, and then um, mm-hmm. I guess y'all y'all were able to connect. And so Swad, you you heard, you know, Erin had looked in the literature. She said there's a lot that she found for parental education that was available in high-income countries, but not as much in low-income countries. Um, Did you agree that, you know, there's some gaps in the literature that have not yet been assessed? And in your experience, um, did you have any ideas about what was needed for this project, what was needed to be found out um, and where that would lead you?
2: Uh, Yes, I think that that's a a very important point, Uh, that there is a lot of... uh, written about uh, communication of uh, how how to break a new a bad news with to families with cancer uh, patients and in high-income countries however in low low and middle-income countries there is not much literature or evidence about any program or any specific better way or a strategy to to communicate or educate families and i think that you know it's This is very important because a diagnosis of childhood cancer is a life-changing event for the family. And the parents not only deal with the cancer diagnosis, but but also acquire new, they have to learn new knowledge and learn new skills to safely care for their child at home. And and we, uh, in 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 low-middle-income countries, pediatric oncology, we work with a limited resources setting and a high burden of patients and the communication with the parents or primary caregiver at home is essential for the success of of the treatment of the child with cancer however as as, uh, as Erin is saying uh, uh, what is the best practice uh, for delivery uh, bad news to a family it has not been as well established for in our Environment.
0: So, what was your current practice uh, before the intervention, or you know, before you did an assessment? How did y'all go about doing it?
2: Uh, You know, uh, the pediatric oncology team, since the beginning in El Salvador, uh, identified that uh, breaking bad news is a, a complex communication task. And the verbal component of actually giving the bad news, it requires additional skills that are not taught at the School of Medicine. So what we identify is that it's important to have a multi-tier interdisciplinary team conformed by psych oncologist, nurse educator, social worker, and, and the pediatric oncology uh, that will be in charge of communicating the diagnosis of childhood cancer to the family. And the goal is that, uh, and what our goal was to understand uh, what are the family's expectation, spectac- expectations of the treatment, identify the social and psychological triggers of lack of adherence for the treatment, and also to involve the patient. Sometimes, like when you have teenagers, you have to involved then in the treatment planning and decision makings so at the, we always have this team working to communicate family but uh, with, with time we have learned that also there is the need to uh, create a, like a different mechanism to to uh, keep up with the communication and the education uh, for the family in order to keep up with the treatment and the, keep the adherence to the treatment. Because sometimes when you are communicating the diagnosis at the first time, you, th- as a doctor, you think that your the family is understanding. And it's after they have talked to the psychologist that we learn that maybe they didn't understand what to expect of the disease like what uh, we don't, uh, it's for us very difficult to identify the parents' emotional reactions and how they interpret the the importance of the treatment uh, because of the stress during the communication. So the communication with the family is something that has to be constant. And we have to, and and now with the support of this project that Erin has developed, we have learned that we need to develop different mechanisms like create uh, videos or uh, brochures or pamphlets with information regarding the treatment or the care uh, at home after the treatment.
0: I see. So it sounds like before you went digging around asking questions to the parents, you y'all in try not to use my Texan accent too much, but y'all in El Salvador. Uh, we're already kind of taking a multidisciplinary approach to both making, breaking bad news in, with the parents, but then also trying to support them longitudinally. So you already had that going, but there was still felt to be some gaps or some some ways in which communication was not uh, happening well or s- some questions were still being unaddressed. Is that a fair way to say it?
2: It's exactly an uh, excellent uh, summary of what I say. Perfect.
0: Yeah. And so... Um, With that feeling in mind, Erin, how did you, or I guess Erin or Sawad, how did y'all approach the families then and go about finding out the information you felt like you needed?
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the key parts of this project being successful was that I worked, you know, through Sawad and some of uh, the other contacts at each site. Because if I had just shown up and asked to interview folks, I don't think I would have gotten you know, nearly the reception and the frankness and honesty that I was able to obtain from families and providers. So I think working with Sawad and her colleagues um, at Benjamin Bloom, um, they kind of facilitated the um, connections with different family members and different members of the healthcare team. And um, that was really valuable in kind of starting the conversation. Um, And then from there, after I interviewed a few people, they would recommend a few other people to talk with, and it kind of was a little bit of a snowball effect that way. And just to add to what Tawad was saying before, I think a big part of this project was also just kind of observing how different centers conduct or um, have their education programs set up, and um, how they found innovative and creative ways to deliver information using um, limited resources. So. At uh, Benjamin Bloom Hospital, they've like even paired with a group of college students who uh, will take topics given to them from the psychology um, department or the oncology department, and they will turn them into children's books. So they have a book geared toward kids to explain their diagnosis, or a gear uh, book geared towards the siblings of patients to kind of explain what's going on with their sibling now that they're going to the hospital all the time, and so. They recognized already the importance of education and have kind of sought out unique ways to provide that for families.
0: That's fantastic. So there were different approaches in the different sites that you saw.
1: Yeah, which was a really cool perspective to see and then be be able to share amongst the sites to say, oh, you're doing this. There's this also project going on at this other site. And maybe you guys could collaborate or you're already doing similar work. Maybe if you're able to share resources, you could save time and efforts that way, too.
0: I see. Okay, so to get inside the minds of the families, though, to understand what they understood, I, it sounds like you sat down and you did just interviews, like uh, structured interviews, semi-structured interviews. What was your methodology that you uh, that you used?
1: Yeah, so we did uh, semi-structured interviews, and generally we met one-on-one with either parents or whoever the primary caregiver was for the patient, so whether that was a grandparent or an aunt sometimes it was older siblings, and just tried to ask about their experience. And then we also did at each site one focus group um, to sort of have the collective group thought on different topics. Um, And for that, we met with between, you know, three and even up to like seven or eight people at a time.
0: These were family members in the focus groups?
1: In the focus groups, it was just family members. And then in the individual interviews, we met with family members individually, but then we also met with Everybody from the healthcare team, from the oncologist to the pharmacist um, to the psychologist to some of the quality improvement folks at the hospital, really banned um, the whole healthcare team to get a diverse perspective.
0: I see. So what did your interviews reveal? What'd you find out?
1: So I think thinking about the different topics that were important for families to learn and the different questions they had. Just kind of to discuss the questions, the number one question we heard repeated across all of the sites was, Is my child going to die? And I think that is the, without a doubt, initial fear that families hear when they um, hear that their child has cancer. And even just listening to how families phrase that question. So in all three countries, it was phrased as, Will my child die from this disease? But in Panama in particular, the healthcare providers and families phrased the question a little bit differently, saying, will my child be cured? And so I don't really know why that difference was there, but I think having the qualitative aspect of these interviews really um, highlighted that. And so in addition to the questions about prognosis, families often, especially mothers, had questions about what did I do wrong? So feelings Mm -hmm. of guilt, you know, one mom said, I fed my child everything she needed. I gave her, you know, all of the housing and clothing she needed, but why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Families often had questions about the cost of treatment um, and how it would fe- affect the financial stability of their family. Um, and then families often had questions about, um, can my child still go to school, still participate in the community? Even after, you know, they had been cured, families were a little hesitant sometimes. and so. Um, Those were the questions that we heard most. And then as far as educational themes, sort of our top three that came out were just the very basic origin of cancer, um, explaining that. I think Sawad actually explained it to me once that because you have such different levels of education um, in these families, you really have to break down the cancer diagnosis to as simple of an issue as possible. And I think, Sawad, you described it as like, uh, you had an analogy to a chicken bone and like explained how cancer can get in bone sort of like a chicken bone. And so another uh, nurse, yes. nurse explained it to me in Guatemala that she describes like the fighting soldiers and the, how the soldiers are the cells. And so kind of learning about that um, nutrition also came up as a really important topic and how to educate families about the importance of hygiene related to food and just sort of healthy, clean eating Um, And then also the importance placed on sort of mental health support and how it's okay for parents to feel stressed and it's okay to ask for help and how nearly all of these sites are really starting to incorporate that aspect more because they know that that's a really important facet that they need to address in order to allow the children to benefit as much as they can from their treatment.
0: Um, I see. Are you you going to say something, Zohar?
2: Oh no no no! Yeah. Totally uh, supporting what uh, Erin has described uh, as a different different ways of how you, the family perceives when you're breaking the bad news about their their child with cancer, and uh, as what she's saying is that generally you, sometimes you can use like skins while you are communicating the diagnosis to the family you can also take a sh- uh, sheet of paper and and make a like a a scheme of how the the bone uh, is like a box with different cells and how these cells uh, start to be displaced by by the bad cells and is the graphics helps a lot sometimes for them to understand but you know it's it's, it's interesting, and sometimes you you have surprise because you think that you are trying to be as simple as possible in the way of using your your words, using the right words to let the family to understand what you are trying to say about the importance of adherence to the treatment and how dangerous is the disease is if. If you don't follow the the the, the medicals recommendations, but uh, sometimes you have surprise that you give this be spe- this speech with simple words and you think that you have made clear the point the the, the important point and the and the, at the end, uh, the family sometimes just tells you, "Oh, I thought that you were going to tell me something worse," you know, and <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you get the surprise.
0: Yeah,
2: so. Uh, And that's the way that how psychology, the nurse educators support the pediatric oncology to communicate with the family. They are the they are the equivalent of a translator with the family.
0: Yeah. So I was going to ask a little more about that, because, well, so these parents that you were interviewing, Erin, they were at any point in treatment, right? Like it was all kind of scattered throughout different places. So it wasn't right at diagnosis. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And we specifically tried not to necessarily target the families who had just received a diagnosis because we felt like they were still sort of in that processing phase probably and so might not be able to they might not even know what they want to learn or what they need to learn yet um so although we didn't have a specific timeline i think that was one of the limitations of the study we didn't keep track of how how long ago families had received the diagnosis but um, we definitely had a varied um, amount of time between diagnosis and we spoke with families.
0: Gotcha. And so, so on what you were saying about how you would tell patients about the disease, about the diagnosis, about the dangers, and then it felt like a connection wasn't quite made with them. And so looking at the answers that Erin produced with parents who were spread all through treatment, what surprised you most about the questions that they had and the the areas of education that they still needed?
2: Uh, for instance is uh, one of the most common question is what I did wrong uh, what did I do wrong the other thing is uh, they are very concerned about how long will the patient will uh, the patient need to be admitted to into the hospital because they have uh, the they compromise with the rest of the family and the sibling support, and they are uh, concerned about how they will treat uh, or work with the rest of the family. And the other concern is if the if the cancer is like a transmissible disease, or it is in the running in the family. And the other thing is the different aspects that can uh, affect the compliance and adherence to the treatment.
0: Well, let me ask you this also about kind of the questions that came up, because when I hear that a parent had the question, is my child going to die? I feel like you could really take that in two senses. One would be they understand that they have a life-threatening illness, and so it's just inevitable that they say, well, what's going to happen with treatment, as anybody would, because nothing's certain. So that's one sense that you could take it. The other sense is they don't, you know, a parent may not realize how Serious or dangerous or life threatening, the diagnosis is. So, were you able to tease out those kind of two meanings from the the um, question that would seem to determine what would need to be responded to, right, and where you need to educate the family?
2: Yes, I, I think that when they asked if my, that when they uh, ex- state the question uh, is my child going to die, I think that they had understood the 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 importance of the diagnosis and the, how dangerous is the diagnosis. And that gives you the opportunity to explain then that the, the there are many chances for depending on the on the diagnosis and the stage of the disease in the moment of the diagnosis that your their child is is going to live. But for that child to be cured, he needs to follow the the treatment and adhering to the treatment so that question give you the the chance to to make to explain then how important that they follow every medical recommendation and yeah. uh, is that question is a leverage for you to explain the treatment uh, however when they if the if the family say oh i think uh, that you were going to explain me something that you're going to tell me that something was wrong, that means that that family hasn't understood in that moment what you are telling. And that gives you the chance to, like a red light, for you to to track that family more closely. Because that's giving you uh, the sign that this family not understanding the importance of the diagnosis or the dangers of the diagnosis that means that this family don't think that the treatment or being at the hospital is important. So that gives you the chance to create the different approach for both families.
1: And I think what was interesting about this like phrasing of the question and what it means, I think it was a little bit different at different sites. So in at Hito in Mexico, we heard time and time again, that families, they literally said the phrase cancer equals death in this country. And so I think families, when they heard my child has cancer, they were just essentially going to say, when is my child going to die? Or is because they were, what they knew was that cancer was a death sentence. However, in, um, I think in Guatemala, the perception that I took away from the interviews was more families. Had heard of cancer, but maybe more with adults, and so didn't really know if the same rules sort of applied with children, and it was more just a question of okay, does what does this mean like what how do I interpret this? And so I think it was interesting to see those differences at the each site um because I do think the question had different motivations,
0: yeah, that's fair. So it takes a little bit of interpretation, and it sounds like you're acknowledging that. so you You had a list of these questions and you said you identified some areas where it would be best to educate families at the different sites. So how did you go about trying to carve out where were the areas that needed to be targeted?
1: Yeah, so kind of going through all of the different interviews from families as well as the healthcare team, I kind of went through and identified what were the themes that were repeated the most often and were considered the most important across Um, discipline. So across the whole healthcare team, including families as well. So um, like the origin of cancer was almost mentioned in almost every single interview, I would say, Um, and pretty much across all sites. So that was clearly something that was really important and was fundamental to kind of moving on with the rest of the education. So I really went by the frequency and the um, kind of Uh, importance that each provider gave that topic. Um, I initially had tried to give a list of um, different topic ideas to healthcare providers and try and have them like rank the different importance but as like a um, interview tool that wasn't very useful because everything was considered very important so it was better to just kind of let the healthcare provider explain to me in their own words what was most important for them
0: okay and can you review the educational themes again which ones did you identify in particular
1: yeah so the origin of cancer and what cancer means was a really important one the necessity of good clean nutrition hygienic nutrition um especially in these poorer families where a lot of times they might eat from uh, street carts or things like that kind of discussing with families how that can be a little bit risky for um infectious reasons. Uh, Another really important topic was just home cares in general and how to take care of the child once they leave the hospital and also warning signs that they need to recognize in order to bring their child back to the hospital. And then I think another really important one was the educational um, kind of aspect of telling families and teaching families about the importance to take care of themselves and get mental health support and um, kind of education regarding that because sometimes families wouldn't know that they could ask for help around that subject area as well.
0: And so, Soad, you you saw Aaron's results um, and what would be highest yield to cover. What did you think of those results and what were the next steps?
2: Well, we have first of all uh, a given importance to the education of the family uh, after the communication of the treatment. So we now uh, send the parents after the communication of the disease, of the, of the diagnosis of the cancer uh, to the nurse educators. So in order to, for them to express all these questions concerning about nutrition care at home, the hygienic of the food at home. Uh, how the patient is going to do to continue their school. Uh, we uh, have also continue working with the compliance and adherence to treatment. Uh, as we you, uh, we were mentioned uh, before that when you listen the type of question, it can give you like light, red lights to identify which of the patterns or what patterns are in risk of abandonment of treatment. Um, and uh, also, we, uh, as I already mentioned, we have the books uh, to work with them, to this, uh, to support the siblings. They need a lot of information on how to take care of the siblings while they are taking care of their of their child with cancer. So we are working also with the support of voluntary team to create this new uh, strategy that is called the La Maleta de Emily, the luggage of Emily. And this is a a technique that has been described in high-income countries that you prepare like a box as a luggage, and you explain in that luggage uh, are different material, educational material uh, to address the, the child. And if the child has the the concern about what why he is at the hospital or how the uh, chemotherapy is going to uh, be administered, what is a catheter? Where is, does the catheter go? Wo- uh, goes so uh, the kid will be able to play with a little doll and to see how to insert a catheter in the doll. That's the idea that we are working with the psychology team and the voluntary team.
0: That's great. So. What I'm hearing is that, like we talked about earlier, you had a multidisciplinary team that was available to help educate the patients. Erin um, and you know, I guess all of you were able to identify some gaps in knowledge, and so you were able to directly target those gaps and try to improve how the families were understanding. Is that a fair kind of way to say how the how everything flowed?
1: Yeah, I think so. And the other thing I think that they have been working on. So the other aspect of this project was sort of what. Type of education was uh, helpful for families. So, did they want to learn by books or print or video? And a very common preference was video. And so, we have now been working with Megan and Mike and the Persistent Productions team to kind of turn these themes into a sort of day one video um, that families, you know, could potentially watch multiple times in case they don't take it all in on that first viewing when they receive the diagnosis. But I think they have been working with Salad and other sites to kind of make sure that it is something relevant for them.
0: I see. So it came out in your as you were talking to families that they would appreciate a different form of, of education. And so media in various forms was something that was not being used so far.
1: Or multiple forms, yeah. And I think videos are especially difficult because they take a more investment than a printed material. So I think um, having this partnership with persistent productions was really valuable, but also kind of learning how to leverage local partnerships as well to make it more applicable for sites that don't have a Megan and Mike to help them with this to make it a feasible option as well.
0: That makes sense. And in the other sites that you went to, were they able to make some targeted changes as well to their education?
1: Usually the um, parent and provider perspectives aligned pretty equally, but you know, sometimes there were. Uh, things that families thought were really important to them that maybe the providers didn't recognize or vice versa. And um, so trying to target more of those topics a little bit more uh, specifically. And also, I think the sites, you know, we were able to share the information across the groups. And, um, you know, uh, we presented to the uh, Pediatric Oncology Society of uh, Latin America, Central America. So kind of getting those groups together and hearing about what other sites were doing also has sort of opened up a little bit of a dialogue for um, sites to kind of take some of the ideas of other sites and collaborate on um, some innovative strategies and um, start addressing some of those gaps that they recognize through this project as well.
0: And have any subsequent measurements been done? Like has somebody gone back and talked to the families and see if we're filling some of the knowledge gaps?
1: So we haven't been back yet. Um, I think, with the day one talk uh, video that is being developed, once that is sort of kind of shared with families at each site, it'll be important to go back and say, "Okay, was this relevant? Was did you learn from it? Was it culturally relevant to you and your family members?" And kind of evaluate the effectiveness of the tool, um, and then also, you know, kind of go on from there. What? How should we change it for the next tool? And. and how can we make it better um, at, and build off of that momentum?
0: When will that tool be developed?
1: So my understanding is that it is almost complete. I think the goal was this month or next month. And then I think they'll start kind of piloting piloting it with families. So Megan and Mike and Persistent Productions have been working on it with the GHI, the Global Health Initiative at Dana-Farber, to kind of make a series of short videos. Um, So providers could share those with families um, in that initial diagnosis or soon after the initial diagnosis.
0: Very good. That's fantastic. Well, so what I really like about this project is that it's simple and elegant, but also effective. Like you were able to identify a a gap of knowledge in, in the literature at large, and then you were able to assess what needed to be done, like where the gaps needed to be filled. And then you were able to work together to fill the gaps. And so, you know, you have some evidence already that your project was directly applicable to improving the care of patients and the care that the families receive. I just think that's a fantastic story to tell that, you know, you you being a trainee, Aaron, in, in a high income country and not necessarily being uh, stationed or located in a resource constrained setting, we're still able to get involved in this area. And so I want to hear a little bit about how you approached, um, you know, having some interest in global health and having some interest in uh, parental education, how you approached successfully doing a project. Because I can say from experience, uh, also being in the United States and being interested in global health during my medical training, I can say from experience that a lot of potential projects have been shipwrecked on the rocks of not being in the places where the project needs to be done and not being able to communicate with collaborators and not choosing an appropriate uh, scope for the project. And so how did you identify this and go about just making it happen? Um, And then how did you also collaborate successfully with these other teams?
1: So I think um, I have been through many situations like you talk about as well. And that's the hardest part, especially I feel like as a trainee when your time is a little bit limited and then you kind of have to go on to the next whatever module or phase of your training. Um, but I think what really made this project successful was working through connections and relationships that had already been established. So the Global Health Initiative and Greenie had really spent time into um, forming relationships, like Suad said, Suad and Eriki are friends, you know, they really have dedicated time to, um, you know, collaborating and making these relationships work. And so I worked through that kind of structure that was already in place. And I also put in some time to make sure that, A, what we were doing was something that the sites wanted and thought they could benefit from. And um, I spoke with them at least, you know, two or three times on Skype before physically going to the site because we wanted to make sure that when I was on the ground, it was as productive as possible and that we were, you know, able to speak with some folks that might have very busy schedules and be respectful, respective of that um, and the realities of, you know, going to a site where you've never been and trying to kind of take everything in while still meeting with as many families and healthcare providers as possible. So I think putting in a little bit of work before traveling was really helpful. And then I think overall, the collaboration has been successful because of the people that work at each site are so passionate and all of the people recognize how important the family education is. And so I think we were very united in our goal to see how this could be furthered. Every single site was doing fabulous work already in regards to the education and involving a wide variety of people and disciplines to help educate families. So it was really just kind of adding on with the work that these sites had already been doing and trying to um, give them a little bit of uh, like an assessment of how the families, what the families were really wanting and, you know, discussing with the healthcare providers, how they could target their education to meet that need.
0: Yeah, I I think those are fantastic points. Those are great for any trainees or anybody in high-income countries that are interested in trying to be a part of uh, the work of global oncology. What I heard you say was, one, you used already existing relationships between institutions, so you didn't have to make your own. And then I heard you also say that you tried to identify needs that the countries themselves had, so you weren't trying to you know suggest new projects but rather you were becoming a part of uh needs that were already trying to be met such as parent education and then you planned your time well when you were there working around people's schedules so that you were able to communicate whenever you were on the ground and then that also allowed you to collaborate well in country with the others so um i think those yeah. are all yeah really important points to take to heart for those of us who are also in your position
1: and i think the other the last thing that i had that was really cannot be emphasized enough was a really fabulous set of mentors on this project so uh Irini in Boston was extremely um valuable and continued to kind of walk me through everything and Soad and uh Dr. Anzillon in Guatemala and Dr uh, Vega Vega in uh, Hito and Dr. Quintero everybody in Panama they were all so open to supporting me and supporting the project and kind of guiding me along the track as a trainee. So I think that cannot be underscored. The importance of that cannot be underscored either. So yeah. I think that was really valuable for me.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And odd. So, so it sounds like you have some experience with these kind of partnerships, with these twinning partnerships between more resource-replete and resource-constrained settings and so, in your experience, both working with Aaron and with others, how can your partners in the higher resource settings work best with your team in El Salvador to successfully complete projects?
2: Uh, well, uh, we have had the opportunity of uh, since the beginning of the pediatric uh, oncology program in El Salvador, twenty-six years ago. The program was developed through the collaborative effort with San Diego Children's Research Hospital. And then, with that time, uh, through that time, uh, Dana Farber Cancer Institute and other hospitals like Sick Kids uh, Hospital in Toronto has been collaborating. And uh, that what is uh, important is that sometimes the, the there are many interventions uh, addressing uh, patient care quality improvement uh, uh, that are being implemented in. In our re- in our country and in our region in Central America, but sometimes because of the workload that the pediatric oncology has, there is not time to to write down or to develop the research the research project to or to ensemble the research project to be shared with the with the with the pediatric oncology around the world. So. In that regard, uh, these collaborative efforts like Erin coming to visit El Salvador, Guatemala and Panama and Mexico uh, has been uh, an opportunity for help us to identify the aspects that need to be improved regarding childhood cancer health care delivery. And this type of efforts become a tool for patients' care quality improvement. So... uh, Now we have uh, taken this opportunity as a way of develop uh, this uh, approach about using the La Maleta de Emily to educate educate children with cancer uh, to understand their treatment, or to develop the video with Megan and Mike uh, with the Persistent Production to create awareness of the of childhood cancer treatment importance. And also, this is an opportunity to create advocacy because education is is important to be addressed uh, to address family, but also needs to address society. Because in the childhood cancer care, the, there is the need of engagement and commitment of a community, a complete community around these kids with cancer, and uh, educating professors at the school will help to continue that the patient continue their education at their school uh, without interrupting their, their their formation as a scholar uh, the city hall the mayor at the city hall uh, will understand the importance of this he uh, uh, going to every appointment that he has in the clinic and if there is a economical need they uh, collaborate with the community to provide the transportation for this kids to, commu- to the hospital. So the education is not only addressing family, but it's also addressing the community. And I think that that's the most important collaboration.
0: That's great. Well, I, we're coming to the end of our time. Is there anything you guys wanted to say that we didn't get to cover?
2: I just would like to thank you for the opportunity of sharing the amazing work done by Irene with the mentoring, uh, Erin and with the mentoring of Viagrini. And thank you, Erin, for the all the work done. And it's going to be, it has been important for our program.
1: And I just would echo the opposite that uh, I think it's been a really good experience for me. And it's really inspiring as a trainee to see how you can do a little, it wasn't a super complicated research project, but it can have an impact. And I kind of look to you guys as my role model. So it's been really awesome to work with you and collaborate with all of these different people from different sites and see how global health, how we can really make an impact. So it's been a really great experience. for me.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you both. I mean, it sounds like you, you are models of how these types of projects should happen. So we appreciate you guys sharing your insights. If people want to get in touch with you, would email probably be the easiest way to do it? Yes. Yes. Aaron, you too. Yep. Okay. So if anyone's interested in getting in touch with either Aaron or Soad about this project and discussing it a little further and seeing maybe how it might fit well in your context, uh, we'll have the e- their email addresses, both of theirs, in the show notes. So if you go onto the podcast website ghccpod.com, dot and go to the episode, you'll be able to find it. Or if you look in your podcast player in the show notes, you'll be able to find it as well. Um, okay. Well, thank you both for talking to me. really appreciate it. I've, I think this has been an incredible conversation. So thank you for taking your time to, to talk to us.
1: Thanks thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah.